Okay, hi Cedric. First question, is Cedric uh, pronounced right? Yes, that's uh, Cedric, you got it. The uh, the actual French pronunciation is a bit hard for a non-French to get right. Uh, it would be Cedric, but uh, Cedric is fine. Uh, it's not Cedric. Okay, Cedric. And mm -hmm. is it French? Yes, it is French. Uh, I'm French. I was living in France until the age of 28. So I spent the first 28 years of my life in France. And I've been in the US for uh, a little bit over 20 years now. Okay, so now the most important question, what was your first computer? My first computer, well, it depends what you uh, call a computer. I had some pocket computer before that, but the first real computer would be an Apple II, uh, which you know we got in our house, I don't know, maybe around 79, so I was 10 years old or so. Uh -huh. uh, it was really my first love and what really opened me to uh, both video games and also coding. Okay. Uh, I became immediately completely uh, fascinated with this machine. And, uh, um, and as a matter of fact, just recently, in the past few months, starting this summer, I ended up writing an Apple II emulator uh, just to, to have some fun with it um, and to understand it even better than I already did. Uh, it was a fascinating project. It was great for me to dive back into my old fashion and uh, all these memories that I have with the Apple II growing up. Okay. So what was first, gaming or programming on your, on your Apple II? I am not quite sure. Probably gaming, because at the time I had no uh, no idea about programming. I didn't know anything. I was uh, 11 years old or something like that. So I'm sure I started by launching a lot of games, uh, which I had already seen at some of my friends or in uh, computer stores, and I was very, very envious. Uh, there was a lot of arcade back then, and uh, so it felt like you could have arcade games inside your house on your own screen, mm -hmm. and uh, you wouldn't have to pay for them. So I'm pretty sure I started pretty heavily on games, but uh, I got interested in uh, writing programs myself, I think, pretty quickly. And uh, and since then, it's been constantly uh, a mix of me. I have phases where I feel like gaming a lot and I have phases where I feel like coding a lot. Oh, still gaming. So, um, oh, yeah, I'm still gaming today, absolutely. Uh, that's interesting because if I uh, really learned programming, I absolutely lost interest in gaming. So as I like you know this programming took over in my case. Uh, yeah, that never happened for me. Uh, I, I thought uh, that one of those would happen, right? So either after a while, uh, and as I grow old, I would lose interest in uh, programming or my brain would no longer be able to do this and uh, focus on other things. That never happened. Uh, and also video games. I've always been playing video games for the past 40 years, and I still do today. And I was uh, doing just a little bit this morning before starting work. So it's, uh, it's still very much a thing in my life. Okay. So then, um, back then, why you started programming? So you could, you know, game all the time. So. And then what was your first program or how you start that? So what you did with it? You know, it's really hard to remember what, what was the, the spark. Uh, I think I just had curiosity to understand how things work mm -hmm. uh, in general. Uh, and I had tried this with different things, but for some reason, software ended up hitting the right spot. I think my brain was wired the, the right way uh, to investigate these things. Uh, and as you may remember, um, back then, we of course, we didn't have the internet, but we've had very, very little documentation, very mm -hmm. little resources. Yeah. You buy a few books here and there. Some of them were translated in French, a lot were in English. My English wasn't that great then. So I just had to figure out a lot of things by myself. And I think part of the fun was that just reverse engineer and figure out how things work has always been the a very strong driving factor in my life and my curiosity. So I think it started this way. I was wondering, how do they display text? How do they display graphics? How do they make sounds? And I just started poking around, no pun intended, uh, and trying to figure out how these things work. So um, 
uh, funny fact. So uh, my first machine was static spectrum, but with a French manual. And the problem is I have no idea about French, you know, so the, it was worthless. I could only know, understand somehow the basic code, but uh, mm -hmm. no, the French explanation was, uh, I only know bien because of my name, but uh, nothing else, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Spectrum and the ZX or ZX80 or uh, 80 and 81 were just before Spectrum. Spectrum was the one after that. I yeah, I, I have one after that. Mine was 128K uh, Amstrad. Yeah. So this was actually no more Spectrum, I guess. Okay, Spectrum was 16K, right? Yeah, and uh, Amstrad had two modes, 48K or 128K. So I could switch between both modes. Okay. Yeah, at the time, all these computers were all uh, legit, right? So yeah. there was no dominant computer, and all of them had different games. They were ported, or sometimes they were exclusive. And you had uh, you saw games on the C64, for example, that were not on the Apple II. That was very, very uh, difficult to stomach. Uh, it was a, a very, very different world back then. But I think C64 was dominant, right? It was. Yeah. So the C64 ended up dominating uh, with Apple II close behind. I think because the Apple II was uh, more expensive than C64. Okay. Uh, but they had both had 6502, so uh, porting was not too hard, and usually they ended up having the same games in the same applications uh, ported to both. So what I saw in in my my world was uh, Atari 800 XL, so for mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, the uh, the ZX Spectrum, of course, and C64, and I never saw Apple back then. I have to admit. Um, okay, interesting. So, um, what was your first, you know, application you wrote, and in, in which programming language? So, you remember the programming language you used? Yeah, uh, it was BASIC. No, of course, at the time there was uh, pretty much only BASIC. Uh, I switched to assembly pretty quickly, uh, sixty-five hundred two. What means quickly? Today... Was twelve or what? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, you, you quickly realize that even though a basic Apple software is pretty powerful, there are still so many things that you cannot do, first of all, in basic. And second, uh, it was just very slow. Uh, I started, okay. I remember starting writing a, a few games, of course, or displaying graphics and things like that. And uh, you could literally see the pixels being drawn one by one. Okay. Uh, and I started looking for for a better, uh, better approaches to this. So I, I fell into 6502 pretty quickly. Uh, and I'm still fairly fluent in 6502 today. Uh, first, because I had I, I wrote this emulator, as I said, in the past few months. So it's refreshed my memory, but it's never left me, really. I've, I've always been able to understand, to read and write a 6502. I've always been interested in the way that the, uh, the games were uh, protected against piracy, against copy back mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to crack a few games back in the days. I didn't have enough knowledge. And now I have a lot more knowledge and I'm able to crack Apple II games just for fun, okay. uh, which is another amazing <clears throat> uh, container of um, uh, ingenuity. I know the way people were protecting disks uh, by using all the intricacies of the way the Apple II works uh, was absolutely incredible. And so trying to reverse engineer and disassemble these is really, really interesting to me. Uh, still is today. It's, uh, it's a weird, uh, weird um, interest that I have. Interesting. So we will come back to, to this, but I'm interested in now in your progression. So uh, presumably I was 12 or 13, you started with assembly, right? Yeah. Just to, just to uh, hack games or write your own games or what was your mo motivation back then? Yeah, I think the games were really the only thing I knew, uh, really. There were a few uh, productivity <clears throat> applications that that myself or my dad were using for uh, Apple Writer, you know, a text editor or uh, financial applications, but I really had no interest. And actually, you know, no knowledge. I, I was 13 years old at the time. I had no idea how to write this. But a video game, yeah, I, I knew what I wanted, at least. Uh, getting there, of course, was extremely complicated. Uh, writing games on the Apple II is really <laughs> not easy at all. So I struggled a lot. I don't think I ever end, ended up writing a full game. But mm -hmm. I started writing quite a few games. Uh, and also with some of my friends that I was in school with. They were also interested in that. So we were trying to do this together. Uh, but yes, the video games were really the, the main factor. Because at the time when you're a kid, that's really all you know. Uh, yeah. and, and you know what you want. So, and what happens then? So, I mean, one point of time, you 
you hit a wall with your game skills, so you started to learn a different programming language, or what was the next step? Uh, you know, on the Apple II, you didn't really have a lot of choice. Uh, it was really uh, AppleSoft or uh, or 6502. Uh, Pascal uh, came up with Pascal UCSD, which was a very interesting new system um, based on bytecode, which is another concept that I started learning then. Um, and as it turns out, I was also studying Pascal uh, in school. Oh, no, that was later. That was university. That was college. Uh, so I tried to do some Pascal. But on the Apple II, that was it. Uh, these were pretty much the only languages you had access to. So um, either you did that or uh, you played games. So were you a true hacker? So you spent all the time with computer? Or was it just, you know, I don't know, half an hour a day or what? how I can imagine? That? I was spending quite a few hours. I, I almost flunked uh, some of my high school uh, grades because <laughs> of computers because I was playing too much. Uh, but you know, thankfully, I was able to uh, to pass uh, just to borderline. So I got my high school diploma and then went to university where computers kept dominating my time. Uh, was it computer at the science? Time, I was all... I'm sorry? Was it computer science? So no, uh, I started college with mathematics. My minor is in mathematics. Wow. Why that? Um, well, I didn't really have a choice. There was no real computer science oh, okay. program at the time when I started. Uh, but I was lucky that as I was transitioning from uh, um, undergrad to, and I'm trying to map the French diploma to the American ones for, for the audience. But when I was about to transition from undergrad to grad, uh, then a, a CS program was creating in the university I was at. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually missed the registration. And it, that was one of my, you know, sometimes in your life, you have these pivotal moments mm -hmm. where you don't really know, but something happens and your life takes a radically different path. Mm -hmm. uh, and I vividly remember uh, it was at the end of the summer, I was about to start my uh, <clears throat> graduate mathematics, so uh, master's in mathematics. I went to uh, see a movie with a friend and that friend, and we were catching up. We had just spent summer away from each other. So we're catching up. I asked him, so what did you sign up for? He said, I signed up for computer science. I said, what? We have computer science? He said, yes, we do. But the registrations were three months ago and it's over now. So I was completely heartbroken, uh, but I still gave it a shot. So uh, the next morning, first hour in the morning, I went to the computer department. I, I registered. I signed up. But of course, it was too late. But by luck, I ended up being accepted. I'm not quite sure what, why. Uh, and at that point, my life changed, right? Suddenly, I was doing math, and I was not very good at math. It was not my thing. But okay. suddenly, I went from studying things that I wasn't really a fan of to being in a, a domain that had already been immersed in for the past five or six years of my life. So I was ecstatic. I ended up doing from 10% computer studying to 90% computer studying at school, which was fantastic. Uh, the first years were pretty easy. Uh, I was way ahead of everybody else because a lot of the people who were starting there had no knowledge at all of computers. So it was easy. But after a couple of years, I started studying a lot more formal and theory and all that. And so I started learning a lot more things. I was really, uh, I was really lucky. Uh, this is where my, my life took a turn for the better. Yeah, perfect. And what you did aside, so um, aside the school, so in the Elysia, was it some activities or you just you know learned at school? So, you mean the other topics? Yeah, well, you you programmed some j just for fun, you know, in your leisure, or you just was uh, fully, you know, immersed in in, in your university. Yeah, I was still group. doing both. So I was still writing a lot of code for uh, for school this time, but I was still doing a lot in my in my uh, spare time. Uh, and for school, we were writing the standard projects, such yeah. you know, writing compiler and and things like that, and studying the uh, the formalism between you know, parsing, grammars, and things like that. Uh, a lot of uh, numeric also, and that that was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it was all code, um, and I ended up also helping the uh, uh, the administration. So they had, uh, of course, a computer science administration people who are the, the root, right? People yeah. who are the admins on the mm -hmm. on Unix and all that. And I ended up doing a lot of research there and figuring things out by myself. Uh, and uh, I helped them, and they ended up uh, hiring me to help them. Uh, oh. So. 
just because they're they also were figuring a lot of things out and back then the internet wasn't quite at the school but we're trying to bring the internet into the school and i had figured out a lot of things on how to do this already so uh, i had to get the internet into my my college which was also super interesting uh, but yeah they ended up hiring me they ended up even paying me which said that you know i don't mind doing this for free I, I get to be a root on all the machines and i get to explore and do things and say no no come on we need to pay you for your time so i ended up uh, doing a, a half time work there while i was doing my studies which was uh, also super interesting to me so it sounds like paradise right absolutely i i was in heaven these years in college were absolutely fantastic uh, i i have no complaints and um in your leisure at home what, what do you programmed was it interesting in games or something else uh so at then uh, i switched from the apple II to an amiga uh, which Five, also was a, a big part in my life. 500? Mm-hmm. Amiga 500? I started with the 1000. Uh, oh, so okay. the very first one, the one when you had to insert the kickstart. Uh, and then, no, I never, uh, yeah, actually I did get a 500 and also got a 2000. So over a period of, I don't know, seven or eight years, that went from 1500 to 2000. Uh, and uh, so by then my horizons had widened a little bit. I had a little bit more knowledge and uh, I think I ended up writing um, yeah, a financial bank account app to, to maintain my, my finances and things like that. Uh, st- I was still trying to write games. I was trying to write demos also. Mm-hmm. You know, the demo scene was a mm-hmm. big thing um, for those who are too young who are listening. They were a way to push the graphics of the computer to the extreme and show some uh, pretty interesting uh, visual and graphic and sound effects, uh, pushing the, all the processors to the limit. Uh, and the Amiga had a very interesting uh, architecture. It was using three uh, co-processors to help with the music, the sound, and the, and the graphics. So uh, it was it was also a lot more complicated. Uh, it was a 68,000, which is also a very, very powerful um, uh, processor back then, 16-bit uh, also. So it was a different kind of assembly, but uh, I, I dabbled in 68,000 uh, 68, as well then. Okay. So interesting. So And what happened after the university? Were you immediately hired or... Uh, no, I uh, after university, I started on an engineering track and then I changed my mind. I decided I wanted to do a PhD. So uh, I ended up going for a PhD. Um, I did my PhD in about two and a half years, three years, from 92 to 95. I defended it in uh, 95, uh, and then I started uh, working in, uh, in the real world. What, what was the topic of your PhD? The topic of my PhD, so that was from 92 to 95, just when the internet was uh, just around the corner, uh, and we had uh, Mosaic and all that. And the, uh, my PhD was about studying what would be the impact of having remote applications on their user interface. Wow. Uh-huh. So, you know, until then, applications were very monolithic. You know, you install an app and you have a big executable. Uh, and at, at the time, the web was just around the corner and we started seeing at least the concept. We didn't have single page app or anything like that, nowhere near that. But there were a few pioneers who were envisioning, you know, maybe at some point we'll be using applications on the web or maybe we'll have an application and it will run on multiple computers at the same time. They will communicate with each other. So I was very interested in that and I tried to study how these applications would be architected. Uh, and I also was very strongly interested in user interface in general. And so I wanted to see there would be an impact on the user experience and user interface if these applications are distributed or not. And were you right back then? Were your prediction right? So have, <laughs> have you do, have you chance, you know, to rewrite your PhD right now? Uh, you know, we have to read it. I still have it. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, a thesis of 150 pages in French. I, I don't think I made any prediction, so I don't know. I cannot tell whether I was okay. right or wrong. But uh, I explored a few concepts which became pretty uh, important in the years that followed. Uh, things like uh, message buses and how to uh, create applications that exchange messages across the network. Okay. Uh, and how they can orchestrate this kind of thing. Um, so, again, it was a, a good topic for exploration for me. I love the team that I was in. 
uh, I, it never really felt like work, to be honest. Yeah. I, again, like you said, it was paradise. I was going to do every day something that I loved. I was even getting paid for it. So it was a really, really a, a very good time. Okay, perfect. And what happens after your PhD? After my PhD, I started working. So um, I worked for a French company for a couple of years. I was doing a, a, a lot of heavy C++ uh, in the Corba area. So okay. uh, I was doing distributed computing. At the time, Corba was very hot. C++ was very hot. I was also uh, a part of the C++ committee, so I, I was involved in the in the language and attending the uh, the meetings and uh, oh. talking about features and things like that. So you know Björn Strustrup? I have I met him. I've shook his hand. I've been in meetings with him. I've talked to him a few times. Uh, amazing guy. He was not the only amazing guy. There were a lot of amazing people uh, during these conferences. I felt like a, a very very unworthy and uh, very young, like an intern, just uh, sitting in the back of the room and listening to uh, very smart people talk about C++. Uh, uh, but yeah, that was, I learned tons of things. I really liked his book, this uh, C plus plus book from Edison Wesley, the thick one, uh, by yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, he he wrote a bunch. The one that I liked the most about him was the design and evolution of C plus um, plus, in mm -hmm. which it wasn't just a reference book where he explained C plus plus, but he explained how uh, the features in C plus plus came mm -hmm. to be. Okay, uh, and to me that was a very interesting insight on how the the committee designed the language, uh, and I gained a lot more respect also on how things are done. I know C plus plus has a pretty bad reputation even today for being a very complicated language, uh, which it is, but. Uh, I also have a lot of respect for how they were able to pull this off with the incredible constraints that they had. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to be not just backward compatible with C, but mm -hmm. also please uh, tens, if not hundreds of companies that all have an interest in C++ and trying to design features that get the agreement of everyone. And that, uh, so uh, anyway, the the whole process was very interesting to me. And uh, and again, I, I get a lot of uh, respect for Strauss-Trapp in the way he was designing and thinking about features and trying to think about ways that they can interact that are negative, uh, that are not sometimes foreseen by the people who offer these features, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that even today I still use. Uh, when I was, I, I helped also drive uh, some of the Kotlin language and it was, or when I was working on Android, we were receiving also a lot of features coming from Android users or pull requests, and they were offering new features which seemed good on the face of them. But then as you dig a little bit deeper and you start seeing all the ramifications of these features, you end up saying, I'm sorry, this is not possible. We just cannot merge this, yeah. uh, which causes a lot of irrit irritation on the person who commits. They, what do you mean? It's a great feature. Everybody loves it. And sometimes you can explain, sometimes you can't, but uh, it's never, really, never easy to add features to a language. So yeah. I, I had, a, I, again, a lot of understanding on how hard it is to design a language or an operating system or a product when it's already so popular that you have to uh, <clears throat> keep everyone happy. Yeah, this reminds me, um, back then I had the idea, idea how to improve EJBs and I went to uh, a conference to Marina Vatkina. She was the expert group member and told her, look, um, if you would do, do change this to this, then it would be better. So yes, but you will break this and this and this in this cases, and this is why that, <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. thank you. I will have to rethink it again. So this was, you know, very short conversation, but she knew exactly, you know, uh, what will happen if this feature will be implemented and what it will break, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I saw that plenty of times. Also, I was involved in some of the JSRs that uh, define the Java language, um, the uh, the generics and the uh, annotations and things mm -hmm. like that. And the same thing, we worked under a similar sets of constraints where we were trying to add annotation to the language. Uh, and we had a lot of very interesting suggestions coming from the crowd. Uh, there was a lot of attention, obviously, from the community. Mm -hmm. where the annotations were really, really wanted very, very hard. And we had to make some very, very tough decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then later try to explain and defend themselves. And even after you defend themselves, sometimes the people who offer the 
the suggestions still don't understand uh, or they don't have the full picture. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a very interesting exercise. Yeah. After your uh, work with uh, C++ and Corba, the next job was Java or still C++? Yes, the next job was Java. So I started using Java maybe around 96, 97. And uh -huh. this is when I moved to the US. Uh, so I was hired by Sun uh, of all companies. Oh, really? So of course it was Didn't knew that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I joined Sun in 98 and I moved to the US in 98. Uh, Sun Labs, to be precise. So more on the R&D. Uh, how, how, how you joined Sun? So you applied or what was the story behind? Uh, I was a bit lucky. The uh, The person that I did my PhD with, uh, the per the guy that I uh, spent three years uh, sharing an office with, uh, ended up joining Sun six months before me. He finished his PhD six months before me. Uh, and then he just referred me. Um, okay. And it was 98. So back then, there were it was very easy to uh, to get sponsorship for a visa and a relocation and all that. It was the, the dot-com boom. Okay. So uh, I, I took a few interviews over the phone, which were very, very nerve-wracking because it was my dream. I had always wanted and dreamed about moving to the U.S. and working there. So I knew this was another pivotal moment in my yeah. life where I had a chance to move to yeah. the U.S. So I, I will always remember this. It was, a, uh, for me, it was three o'clock in the morning when I got that call because they were in Pacific time, of course, and it was two people. It was uh, one Irish and one Indian woman. And so I had a very strong Irish accent over the phone at three o'clock in the morning, coupled with questions from a, with an Indian accent coming over the phone. Uh, it was absolutely nerve-wracking for me. It spent an hour. <laughs> I think I did well, but by the time I hang up, it was four o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't sleep. I was I was a mess. I was sweaty. I was trembling, and I was hoping that I did well. But uh, uh, it was uh, very, very probably the hardest interview I've ever had in my life. But it looks like I passed. So uh, they made me an offer, and uh, and of course, you know, a few months later, I I put my resignation to my uh, to the French company, and a few months later, I moved to the US. How long you had to wait uh, until the confirmation from Sun? It was pretty quick, I think. Yeah, uh, just a few weeks, uh, okay. two three weeks. Uh, and then I just had to wait for uh, for my visa, which uh, took uh, four months. So I basically took four months of vacation. The uh, The French company I was working for was not very happy with me leaving. Uh, and um, when I told them, they, they were all unhappy, including the CEO who had hired me uh, personally. He was very angry with me. And so they, they forced me to do the three-month notice in France. And I think in, uh, in Germany and a lot of yeah. other uh, European companies, you know, when you quit, you have a to give usually a three month notice. And usually you can negotiate it to maybe two months. They're gonna force you to do two months and then you can leave. But they told me, no, you're gonna do the three months. Uh, and as a kind of a punishment, I think. Yeah. And to me it was, well, all right, fine. I don't mind because I need to wait anywhere for the visa. So uh, I did some, I kept working normally for the first two months. And then the last month I just hang out and did nothing. And yeah. uh, I don't understand why they were being so bitter about it. And even my former team, they were really angry. And I was a young 28 year old who had been offered a job at Sun to move to the US. And of course, I'm going to take it. Yeah. Why is it so hard to understand? So it was a bit sad uh, by that. But you know, I turned the page and I moved to the US and uh, a new chapter opened for me. And the company is still around? Yes, it is. Yeah, oh, they, okay. they were public then. They were public then. They're, they're still around. They're still, I think, doing well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, and then um. What you did at Sun, Sun Labs, you mentioned. Yes, uh, Sun Labs. So we were working on a, a, some kind of a smart answering machine that was uh, completely programmed in Java and uh, was able to unify your email, your voicemail, uh, your text messages, because we already had, we had some text messages then. It was uh, the 99, 2000. Uh, so it was a pretty ambitious thing, which was way, way ahead of its time. Um, and, uh, and Java was not there. Java was way too slow to do this kind of Java on an embedded device. So that project ended up being canceled about you know, maybe a year after I left, to the surprise of nobody, really. 
And um, and myself, I have started realizing what was, that what, what, what was the code name? It's always interesting, you know. It's always fun. Persona. Persona, okay. Persona was the code name. Uh, I always re- I always remember that because and, and the team again was fantastic. Uh, so of course I had my you know my former uh, colleague, the guy that I did my PhD with. So we already knew each other, but I also met you know plenty of very very bright guys on that team, and we're having a lot of fun. We're hanging out and doing a lot of things together. But, but did uh, it but actually worked? Did it work somehow? I mean, at least yeah, a prototype. Yeah. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, we had multiple prototypes and we had uh, industrial design and okay. uh, we had several shapes and uh, boxes and, and spheres and stuff like that. We tried uh, multiple things uh, and we had a team that uh, was crossing across everything, right? We had software, we had backend, we had front end, we had hardware design, we had uh, hardware in, uh, an industrial design, UI designer as well. Mm-hmm. All of this put together. So it was a pretty complicated product to put together, but we had multiple uh, prototypes that were running in our homes. Uh, I don't think it went any further than that. Uh, but we did have something running, but it was just very slow, and uh, there was really no demand for this. Uh, but you know, it's Sun Labs; it's uh, it's R and D, so it doesn't yeah. necessarily need to have a market. We're just exploring things, so it was okay. Yeah, it sounds to me like the personal assistant right now, like you know, the Apple one or Google or or, or Microsoft. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. And then you left uh, Sun, or you or you worked <laughs> for. Yeah, so um, so what I realized during this year is that, uh, ironically, Sun is not a great place to write Java code. Okay. Because Sun is a hardware company and they really, really drill down that message in all Sun employees, right? Hardware is what makes the money. And we've always been uh, looked at as uh, a department that is losing money because we're writing software. We're not doing hardware. Well, we were doing a little bit of hardware, but we're not selling hardware, Sun hardware. So we were a loss lead, basically, just losing money to do some R&D. And so as a consequence of this, uh, Sun was not very good at writing Java. Uh, at the time, JavaSoft had already kind of uh, imploded. You know, JavaSoft was very active during 95, 98, 99, but a- around that time, all the people in JavaSoft scattered and went to create uh, a lot of other startups that were Java-based, but they had all left Sun. So a lot of the, the expertise of writing good Java code was gone, and the emphasis of Sun was not on writing Java code, it was to sell hardware. So uh, I realized that, and I thought, I need to find a company that is really, really into software and that mm-hmm. takes software seriously, and ideally, I want them to be in Java, of course. So I started looking around, and at the time, I was very interested in application servers, and in particular, EJBs. So Mm -hmm. I had kind of narrowed my choices to uh, companies that were selling application servers, and at the time, there were quite a few of them. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember the names? So there were lots of them. I yes. tried to remember. This was like you know the uh, Tengar WebLogic, of course. Then yeah. there was the uh, the uh, Orion server, right from from yeah. Sweden still, which became the uh, Oracle application server. Then was that's right. Uh, Top tier persistence. Uh, Persistence that, power that tier. Persistence. The, the one I ended up uh, uh, signing up with was Imprice. So they were doing uh, the Borland, Borland. right? Uh-huh. They, they were doing the Imprice server. Uh, and I was very, uh, <clears throat> very uh, uh, starstruck with Imprice because they had all these uh, book authors, very famous book authors that have written a lot about Corba and things like that. So I mm-hmm. signed with them. Uh, and then uh, another very pivotal moment in my life happened, uh, which is I went to a party in San Francisco. I ended up talking with someone and uh, asked me what he does, what I do. I said, well, I just signed uh, with Inprice. He said, oh, really? Well, I work for this uh, little startup called WebLogic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since you signed up with an application server, we do application server too. Why don't you come and interview with us? I had just met the guy. But mm-hmm. you know, this is how it went back then yeah. in San Francisco and yeah. uh, Silicon Valley. This is how things went. So I told him, but I've already signed and I'm, I'm starting in two weeks. I said, well, what's the harm? Just come and interview with us. I said, all right, fine. So I went to interview with them, uh, with WebLogic, and uh, I went through an entire day, you know, eight interviews back to back of writing code, talking to engineers and uh, being uh, asked some pretty tricky questions. Uh, I ended up in the day completely wiped again. My, my brain completely fried. I was sitting on the train and, and suddenly it, it dawned on me that I think these guys have the fire. 
Mm-hmm. They, they know what they're doing. They're passionate. And if every single employee that I would be working with are like the guys who just interviewed me, and, and girls, also, there were so few women, sorry. Uh, this is where I want to be. Um, and so I, uh, over that, ride, that, that train ride for an hour, by the time I got home, I realized I, I'm going to go with WebLogic and I'm going to have to tell him price that I'm not coming. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I made that decision. It was, it was difficult. Uh, but I ended up joining WebLogic and, uh, and I spent the next uh, four years there, uh, which was also a fantastic uh, software growth for me. Uh, I learned tons of things. Uh, I ended up being around extremely smart people. I was not disappointed in that. Uh, and working on really cool tech and the uh, WebLogic application servers and uh, EJBs and all these things were really, really hot at the time. And uh, they, they were solving a lot of very interesting problems. Did, did you like Java, actually? Because you, you spent lots of time with C++. What was your reaction to Java? Because at the beginning, oh. if I saw Java, what I really missed were the header files. It's like, this is mm-hmm. what I'm missing. There is no clean separation between the headers and the implementation. Mm-hmm. And the multiple inheritance is also what I missed. And you know the explanation that the interfaces make up with. I know this is not not a real explanation. This is uh, uh, inher- interface in, um, uh, inheritance and not a real inheritance. What was your reaction to to Java? Pretty much exactly the same. Uh, okay. The very first time I saw Java, I was seeing all this code in line, right? You know, you you, you write the, the function, you write the code, write the function, write the code, write the function. And I'm thinking that's crazy. You know, we need to have some headers that just show yeah. the, the, yeah. the prototype of the function. And so I, I really did not like it at all. But um, I was won over very quickly. Uh, the thing is that I was coming out of uh, six or seven years of really struggling with C++, and it was really uh, a struggle to get C++ to compile. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, there was G++, there was uh, Visual Studio, and that was it. Templates were an absolute mess in C++, yeah. and we're using a lot of templates. Uh, compiling and linking was taking forever. Debugging, GDB, and all that were really, really difficult. So I was kind of initially in the you know the proverbial frog that gets slowly boiled little by little and doesn't realize it. Yeah. But you know it was C plus plus. It was my environment. It was this the way it's meant to be, and that's how it is. Period. And then Java came about, and suddenly I started seeing my code becoming a lot clearer, a lot cleaner. No longer of these weird pointer slash arrow star things like that. It's all very clean. It's garbage collected. We don't need to free to malloc and all these things. Uh, so I was one over pretty quickly, and it was a, a breath of fresh air to me, uh, seeing Java. Uh, it was, all right, this is this is where I want to be. This is my next evolution. Okay. Um, but the only problem is that it was very slow, very, very slow. So I wasn't quite sure if it was going to succeed. Yeah, okay. And uh, at WebLogic uh, Company, what you did then? So what was actually your task? Uh, I joined the EJB team, and I implemented a, a bunch of things in the EJB land, uh, message-driven beans, and I had with the container, with uh, CMP and BMP, so container-managed persistence and uh, beans-managed persistence, things like that. Um, and I ended up touching in other areas as well, the uh, um, load balancing, clustering, and things like that. So there was, there was no shortage of uh, interesting things to okay. work on. How many developers worked on, on the EJB container, for instance? You, you remember that? Uh, the team was not very big. We were less than 10 people. Yeah. Right? Probably seven or eight people, I think. Why I'm asking, though, was my observation is actually all, you know, the great or somehow popular things were created by small teams, right? Mm-hmm. So there is, a, yeah. I think there is no example in, in computer where, you know, a huge teams achieve something nice or interesting, right? Oh, um, I was wondering. Well, it, it always starts this way, right? The question yeah, yeah, is, of course. Can, they, can, they, can, they maintain, yeah. can they maintain the quality of the product? I would think, you know, an operating system like Windows at some point, you know, it, it, it quickly went over just 10 people writing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they have amazing quality. But no, I, I hear your point. Uh, a lot of the great products start with very small teams that are extremely effective and that are just filling a, a hole in, in a demand. And so they're they're plowing through this very, very quickly and they release very quickly brand new features that are adopted right away. Uh, that's that's pretty much always how it starts. I agree. Mm-hmm. But you also wrote EGP Doclet, right? 
Yeah, so <laughs> so that's that goes way back. Um, so at the time, developing Egyptian applications required writing a lot of XML. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had to have these XML descriptors, and these XML uh, files contain a lot of references to your Java code. Exactly. And it's, so it was very easy to get these uh, going out of sync, right? If you rename a Java method, but you're referencing that Java method in your XML file, then suddenly things break, and there is no good way to do this. So this is where I started thinking that whenever we need to configure something that needs to refer into the code, then maybe that thing should be inside the code and not outside. Exactly. So. I, I didn't realize it, but at the time I was uh, slowly realizing the importance of annotations. Uh, mm -hmm. This this set me on the path later to work on annotations. But at the time, I just thought, how can I do this? And uh, I created this EJB.let, which was using JavaDoc uh, comments, mm -hmm. where uh, you you this time whenever you need to refer to a method in your Java code, you just put that comment on top of the method. And so if later that method gets renamed, everything is still going to keep working. So mm -hmm. you're, you're attaching things together that need to be attached together. And so based on that, you generate the descriptors and all that. So uh, EJB uh, GN, by the way, uh, Doplet was different uh, different thing. EJB GN was the name of the thing exactly. that I created. Mm -hmm. uh, ended up being very, very popular in the, in the EJB world, and people started using it uh, a lot. Yeah, it, it, uh, a huge then, impact, uh, huge, I, huge impact. So I, I was, you know, I was in Germany in enterprise projects, and uh, and so uh, you know Cedric, Cedric, who yeah, he created the, the like the it solves lots of problems. It's called EGP Gen, as you as you mentioned, mm -hmm. because XDoclet was a different thing. And uh, mm -hmm. what I wanted to ask you, what was the relation between EGP Gen and XDoclet? So I mean, they were obviously very, very similar. So yeah, so uh, so EGP Gen, uh, I, I believe, was first. I think yeah, it was. Uh, and XDoclet take the take my idea to the next level, where they thought, well, you know, this idea of using JavaDoc to put annotations basically inside JavaDoc is pretty powerful. And why would it be limited to just EJBs? Yeah. So they decided to create this framework where you could uh, create these annotations and then generate all kind of XML, not just yeah. for EJB. So they just took my idea, which was an implementation for a very specific purpose, and they made it a lot more universal. Okay. And then from that, they started creating all kinds of tools, and the community also started creating all kinds of tools based on XDoplet uh, that were that were doing basically the same thing as EJBGen was doing, but for other things. For example, for web servers, for uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know so, databases and things like that. Every, everything. And, and the funny funny fact is, at the end, we use XDoplet to generate web logic specific descriptors, even. Mm -hmm. So back yeah. then, so yeah. Um, but you were not involved in XDoplet, so there was no relation to the project. No, not at all. Uh, I, I talked a lot to the uh, the authors. I forget their names, unfortunately. Okay. But uh, I, I, we had we exchanged a lot of ideas, of course, and uh, we were sharing a lot of emails and things like that. Oh, nice! But um, what I also my impression is that actually the XDoclet was the first idea to annotations, right? Because uh, if you if you watch at the uh, if you look at the EJB three annotations, they are very very similar to the XDoclet uh, doclets. I mean, you know, the naming it was the migration mm -hmm. from XDoclet to EJB three was. Simple. Uh, I think JB3 was more impacted by, uh, more influenced by uh, Hibernate and uh, everything mm -hmm. that came, because this is when Gavin came on board of yeah. uh, the EJB. Uh, the I was part of the EJB uh, committee as well. Uh, and Gavin came on board for EJB3 and he helped mm -hmm. us design uh, JPA and uh, all the persistence. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, EJB3 is you know also the stateless EJB, is what I meant. So if mm -hmm. um, and uh, the uh, XDoclet uh, that they, they said this is like attribute oriented programming. This is what they referred to, and uh, to put metadata and then annotations came in, which were similar concept, but was uh, I mean um, implemented with compiler in a type safe manner, so it was easier. And uh, the last thing is the XDoclet was really well supported in Eclipse, so there was even auto completion at the end, so you could even control space, you know, and get auto completed all the metadata. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, um, um, were you the own uh, the the only author of uh, uh, EGP Gen? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and still, and since I wrote it as part of my uh, 
Well, I ended up writing it on my own, but it ended up being used by BEA and by WebLogic. Uh, when I left BEA, I think uh, BEA uh, retained the, the rights on EJBGM, so I could no longer work on it after I was gone from BEA. Oh, okay. But it's also one, I mean, this, this, back then it was a huge achievement, right? So, Or I would say it had a huge impact on the community. Uh, it changed it, uh, it. It changed the web. It changed everything because you know, the observation that the metadata should be uh, in the near of the code and not separated. This, this was mm -hmm. actually the the new wave of Java applications, combined with the idea from Ruby on Rails, right? Convention of a con con configuration. Uh, yeah, yes, that, that's my read. But I don't want to. I don't give myself too much importance here. I don't really know the exactly the impact since, uh, that it had, but it did lead to. Uh, uh, the idea that annotations should become part of Java. Yeah. <clears throat> and that led to uh, uh, Josh Block uh, reaching out to me and telling me to join the the JSR, the JCP actually that we were, that was created to add annotations to uh, to Java. And so uh, I joined this committee and uh, obviously I had a lot of experience and ideas and, and thoughts about what annotations should be uh, inside the Java language. Uh, and so in, um, I think it took us a little bit under a year to to come up with that the spec of annotations that you know we're using today. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it was a, a great work, uh, very interesting to to see all the constraints that we had to operate with, all the various syntaxes that we were thinking of. We looked at .NET and the kind of annotation they were using, and we ended up settling on something that was a good blend <clears throat> of the .NET annotations and something that would match the Java culture as well, and that would also enable some of the existing projects to to be very very successful. So. Okay, nice. Uh, and you still worked for uh, WebLogic back then? Uh, no, I had switched to Google then. Ah, okay. And uh, and when you started with TestNG, it was also an interesting you know, uh, project. Yeah. Uh, so I started TestNG at the end of BA. Uh, and by the time I joined Google, I had uh, worked on TestNG for about a year. And I released TestNG 1 on the year that I joined Google. So it was 2004. Why you started? Uh, but with I had already started working in 2003 or so because I had already started feeling the pain in my work at WebLogic that JUnit was just not up to the task. And, okay. uh, we were trying to do some pretty sophisticated testing scenarios for WebLogic that required a lot of end-to-end -end testing, functional testing. Uh, we needed performance. We needed parallelism. We needed uh, test groups. And uh, JUnit was completely uh, useless at any of these things. So I started working on TestNG at the end of BA, and then in 2004, when I joined Google, it, uh, it's, a, it's the same year. I, I don't think it's the exact same month, but on um, the same year, I, I released TestNG, so 2004. Okay. Um, back to WebLogic. What, I was a huge WebLogic fan. So back then, WebLogic was revolutionary, but not from, I would say, from the you know, scalability and performance, also great, but uh, developer friendliness. That's what I really liked. You know? There's a WebLogic jar. And this was, there was one WebLogic client, it also was. It started very quickly, um, and just referring until WebLogic 8. After 8, everything <coughs> went worse and worse and worse, and it was slower and slower. But until WebLogic 8, it was great. And, you know, they had concepts like the nice JMX integration. They had already a console. Mm -hmm. You could script everything with Python, so you can automate everything. So it, 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 the... the, the um, the administration interface, you know, with the charts where you could look at the um, how how the queue behaves, you know, the incoming queues and the requests, what what's going on in the server, it was it was really really good, and and then that they, they overloaded WebLogic with features, which was somehow beginning of the end. This was my impression, right? So I never understood why why that happened, you know. Yeah, they started building on top of WebLogic, right? They started creating WebLogic integration and WL, yeah. a bunch of WL family things, but. Uh, I think what, what you saw in WebLogic was uh, <clears throat> just a manifestation of the fact that it was a, a small team of engineers who were really passionate about what yeah. they're doing. Uh, and this usually yields good results. 
Uh, and at the time, we were competing against IBM and WebSphere. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, there was this uh, feeling of uh, uh, this being, being the, the rebels, right? The small band of scrappy rebels who are fighting against their giant IBM yeah. and, and WebSphere. Um, and we were sometimes a bit too cocky also. Uh, we were very, very often underestimating the IBM people. They were very good at what they were doing, but they also came with uh, a lot more weight, uh, yeah. a lot more heaviness uh, yeah. that, that's characterized IBM at the time. So I think that was a, that was an asset for, for a little while. But uh, it's just hard to fight against giants. And little by little, you know, WebSphere caught up and got better. And uh, they were better at marketing also and uh, getting into accounts. And uh, uh, overall, they, we were pretty sure that we we're going to uh, slaughter them. But that never happened. Okay. So from back then, I have to admit, the popularity of WebLogic was as, as good as, as IBM, I would say, uh, if not better, you know, from in Europe. Um, and it was, of course, faster, you know, and easier, easier to work with. The, the web was always a little bit heavyweight, I would say. Now it's changed with Open Liberty. I don't know whether you are aware there's Open Liberty server, which is great. It is like the, it's it's called uh, WebSphere Liberty, and it starts okay. in a second or one and a half second and comes with very little memory uh, consumption, 20 megs or something. So this is the new WebSphere, completely rewritten five years ago or something like this. Or not rewritten, it is a complete new project, actually. Okay. Okay. So, and the test NG uh, solved some of the problems because you had test groups and parallelism and stuff like that, right? This was the motivation of about test NG. Yes. Uh, it, so, uh, parallelism, test groups were really things that I feel very strongly about. I also feel very strongly about uh, dependent tests, which even today are still controversial. It's, it's really funny. And I still stand by the fact that for end to end testing, it's important to have tests that depend on each other. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've talked a lot about this, not going to go too deep into that. So, uh, I, I implemented these things. And um, uh, what else was there? Well, an an annotation also. It was uh, annotation driven from the get-go. There was no reflection, uh, obviously. I was uh, test energy was just uh, uh, the confluence of several ideas that I had been working on for the past years. Right? It was end-to-end uh, -end testing. It was annotations. Uh, and all these other things, and they just crystallized in my head. And sometimes I thought, at some point, I thought, well, I think I have a pretty good idea what a testing framework could look like now. And I put all this together. I, I released it. Uh, and to be honest, I was I had really no expectation. My goal here was just to explore. And to show the JUnit team, which uh, JUnit had been stagnant for uh, for four or five years, mm -hmm. nobody was working on it anymore. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I just wanted to uh, do a, a demonstration of this is what modern Java could look like, and this mm -hmm. is what a modern testing framework could look like. And uh, my point was just here, here it is. I put it out there, and then I move on. Um, but what happened is actually is a lot of people started uh, adopting it, and so I ended up being pulled back into TestNG and asked to you know, add more features and more features and more features, and uh, and it became a lot more uh, successful than I had anticipated. And uh, and even today, I'm still still working on it, although. The, uh, I'm mostly doing uh, code reviews and releases and uh, things like that. I'm not writing the code on TestNG anymore. I have uh, two who are fantastic developers who've taken over, who are driving TestNG. Uh, their name is Junior Air and uh, Krishnan Mahadev. And, uh, they are the ones, they are the heart of TestNG. But I'm still involved and I, I'm still uh, reading the mailing list and uh, and making releases today, uh, 16, well, like 17 years later now. Yes, actually, that was a great feeling, right? <laughs> But uh, I, yeah, yeah. but I assume you are you're no more working on EGP Gen, right? This is <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as I this mentioned, just, I start working on EGP Gen. Yeah, yeah. A, a while it's just ago. just joking. Um, and you still using TestNG? Uh, yes, yeah. Whenever I write uh, some Java or some Kotlin, which I do, uh, I use TestNG. Uh, I follow JUnit also uh, four and five. I know what they're doing, uh, but obviously, it's uh, TestNG is the one I'm the most fluent in, so it's uh, it's my default. And you're still working at Google right now? No, no, I left Google a while ago. I left Google in 2010. Okay. Uh, I was at Google from 2004 to 2010. Uh, and after, uh, since Google, I've worked at a bunch of companies. I worked at LinkedIn, uh, at Yahoo, 
Uh, I've worked at uh, Smart Things more recently, and right now I'm working at uh, Okta. Ah, before we cover Okta, what you did at uh, Google was uh, just read that uh, something with Gmail, right, uh, for Android? Yeah, so uh, uh, so Google, the first year I joined uh, at uh, AdWords, because at the time when you joined Google, you were going to work on AdWords, because this is where the money is made. Okay. Uh, but but after a year or so, it was... Was it Java? It was, more was it still Java? It was, it was Java, yes. Absolutely. Oh, interesting, uh, okay. Uh, well, Google had plenty of Java back then already. Um, so I did this for about a year, but after a year, I decided that I had been doing backend work for the past eight years of my life, and I wanted to do something different. So uh, I looked around, and I found that uh, Google had a, a mobile team. The mobile team, so it was 2005. The mobile team was basically five people. Okay. <laughs> so I said, uh, you again. know, I don't <laughs> Again, again, right? Again, small <laughs> again, team. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing the small team thing again. So uh, I thought, well, I don't know the first thing about mobile. I, I had a cell phone back then, but it, it was still pretty recent, even for me. But I thought, hey, why not? So uh, I asked to transition. And at the time, it was uh, pretty easy to transition across teams at Google. And I think I had gained enough uh, reputation that uh, my, you know, the VP was okay do, letting me do this. So I moved to the mobile team. And at the time, yes, we had our staff meetings. We were fitting in a very small meeting room. And we were wondering, okay, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. uh, so we looked at all the projects and I decided, you know what, I'm going to start the mobile Gmail project. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see if we can have Gmail on mobile phones. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to remember that back then, 2005, so there was no Android, no iPhone. The, uh, the mobile were Nokia, were Motorola, StarTac, mm -hmm. uh, Razer. Mm -hmm. uh, they, were, they, they had some J2ME on them. Um, J2ME was a, a nightmare, uh, always has been a nightmare because there is no real norm. Mm -hmm. It means that when a phone says it has J2ME on it, you really don't know what it really mm -hmm. has. So uh, I had no idea what I was signing up for, <laughs> but I decided, all right, I'm going to do Gmail. So I started the Gmail team. It was just me. And uh, and after a year, it was, we had about 25 people, and we ended up shipping Gmail on these feature phones. We call them feature phones, not smartphones. Um, we were supporting something like 300 different devices, which I think was uh, pretty impressive considering how hard mm -hmm. it was to develop on J2ME. Uh, and so we got Gmail to work on all these phones, and uh, it was a pretty big success. Uh, we immediately had you know, millions of users uh, downloading it and using it. Um, I think we we broke some new ground in terms of interface. We were able to replicate close to the uh, the conversation interface on these phones that you have on the desktop. Uh, overall, I think the app was uh, working pretty well, but we were extremely limited by a lot of things. By first of all, the operating system of all these phones, they were all over the place. Um, they were Symbian, there were a bunch of others, so weird Linux-based uh, operating systems. Uh, by Java itself, which was still not super fast, and especially on these underpowered and with very low memory devices, uh, and J2ME itself, which, like I said, is a nightmare. Uh, it was different. So it was very hard to develop. It was very hard to debug. There were no tooling, really, no IDEs. It was uh, really the prehistoric ages. So we shipped that. Uh, and then I started working on the on the next version with the team. And this is uh, around the time where Android was acquired by Google. Mm -hmm. uh, so Andy Rubin and his team came on board. And uh, Andy uh, reached out to me and said, uh, he told me basically what he was doing. He said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm building a brand new operating system for mobile phones. Uh, so first of all, obviously, we're going to need Gmail. And you kind of know Gmail on mobile. Uh, but we're also going to have this uh, operating system written and uh, being implemented in Java. Uh, obviously, you know Java too, so basically, <laughs> we, we really need someone like you on board. Um, Paradise again, I, right? I'm sorry? <laughs> Paradise again. Yeah, again, yes. Yeah, that's the story of my life, you know, being in the, the right place and being very lucky. Um, so, of course, I didn't need to be convinced. I mean, this is the dream of any engineer, right? You, you get to write an operating system from scratch. Uh, just, that's that kind of opportunity only arises once a year, uh, once a, a lifetime. So, of course, I, I signed up right away. I left the Gmail team, and I joined this uh, small team of uh, ten people. I think at the time there were maybe uh, 
So mostly uh, Andy's team and uh, two or three existing Google engineers. And there was just the 10 of us starting Android. Um, and we started building everything. So this is when my Android journey started. And what you built on Android? So the Gmail or, or operating system? Yeah. The, the well, actual everything. Uh, okay. At the time, we needed both, right? So I was okay. involved in everything. Uh, I couldn't write Gmail because there was no UI. There was not even the uh, the, the processes. There was nothing in the operating okay. system. So we were building Gmail and the other apps, also Calendar and others, in lockstep with the operating system. And very often, we would hit a wall and say, hey, the operating system doesn't have that. So we go to the system team and we tell them, we need this feature. We need to be able to spawn a process. We need able to have uh, inter-process communication, all these things. And so. So they built it for us and also we assist, we give them feature requests and the guidance and all that. So we did everything. Uh, so in the first year, I was involved in a lot of different things. Uh, and then as the team grew and it grew very, very quickly, then I started becoming more narrowly involved in just Gmail. Okay. And uh, how big was the operating system team? Also 10 people or 10 people altogether? Yes. Yeah, so when it started, it was a uh, half than 10, right? Because there were other people who were doing other things. Oh, so uh, interesting. Yeah, it was four or five people. The names I have in mind are, yeah, I can count them on one hand. And how important was the project at Google? Was it like, you know, an, the, the most important project or something like no one noticed? Or what was, you know, the, the spirit in the team? It was it was extremely, extremely strategic for, for Larry. Uh, Larry was especially the one who was sponsoring it very, very heavily. Uh, he really wanted to to break the, the stranglehold that uh, operators had. Uh, by the way, again, Apple was not in the picture yet. Yeah. Uh, they, they hadn't, so the iPhone was not around. Uh, there were just rumors at the time. So at the time, Larry just wanted to make sure that users were in power. Uh, and they felt that users were at the mercy of carriers. They had mm -hmm. to pay these crazy subscription fees. They were getting crappy phones, uh, locked phones. They were locked to the uh, SIM card or to the, their carrier, and they had uh, plenty of things. And he was really not happy about that. And he, he saw an opportunity for Google to do something, first of all, nice for users, but also potentially expand the business as well. Mm -hmm. So this is why uh, the mm -hmm. acquisition of uh, Android happened. So it was very strategic, but it was also extremely secretive. secretive. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a big shift from Google. Uh, until then, at Google, all the projects were all transparent. Mm -hmm. As a Google employee, you had access to everything. Mm -hmm. You could go to a central website uh, internally and take a look at all the projects, see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but Android was the first to curb that trend. Uh, we were extremely uh, private. We had our, our own building. We had our own access badge that you know, Google employees could not access. We were not allowed to talk about Android. We were asked to hide our phones. Uh, but of course, the word started spreading across Google that you know, we're building a phone. And so we had uh, this uh, TGIF where Larry, Sergey, and Eric would go on stage every Friday and they answer candidly questions from anyone, really. And the number of questions about, are we building a phone? Or what is Android? Or what's going on? Uh, we're getting more and more frequent. And every time they had to dodge and not really answer. So uh, that part was a bit awkward. Um, I think it, they decided it was important to keep it a secret because there were other forces at work that mm -hmm. they, they could not really disclose. But um, so that, that was a bit odd for me as a, as a former Googler. Uh, but for someone coming from Android, they probably thought, well, it's business as usual. It's not uh, uncommon for a company to have yeah. secret projects that, yeah. are, that are hidden from everyone else. It could be even though some additional motivation, right? We are something special and building, building something cool. So why not? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In, interesting. So why you left Google? So you wanted to do something else than operating systems? Yeah, so it's a part of it. Uh, I think another part was I felt that I was getting comfortable. And uh, ah. as much as being comfortable feels nice, it's uh, it's really a, a feeling that throughout my life I've tried to fight and not to, to fall too far into my comfort zone. Uh, I felt that I could have retired at Google. I could have spent the next 20 years of my life at Google and be perfectly happy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was definitely an outcome that I, I contemplated for quite a bit. But I also felt that I had a bit of fire still in me and I wanted to discover new things. And more importantly, I wanted to experience a startup. 
Now, by then, I had been in Silicon Valley for 12 years or so, and I had always been at big, been at big companies. Uh, and of course, the startup culture is everywhere here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'd like to try this. And it would be a bit sad if I finished my career in the Bay Area and I never went to a startup. So my goal was I need to quit Google and I need to find a way to have a startup experience in some way. Mm -hmm. I ended up joining LinkedIn, so not quite a startup, but at the time LinkedIn was 500 people. It was one year before the IPO. So it was definitely a much more scaled down version of Google, basically. Mm -hmm. This is where Google was 10 years prior to that. Mm -hmm. So I got this reduction in scale, but it wasn't yet the startup experience. Okay. Uh, but LinkedIn interested me because I felt that they were also on a hyper growth curve uh, and they were about to have to revamp their infrastructure and be able to meet a 10x, if not 100x growth. Uh -huh. uh, and I found this extremely interesting. I felt that I could have a, a role in inventing these tools at LinkedIn, which at Google are handed to you. Now, at Google, when you want to start a project, they're already telling you, you're going to use this for your backend, this for your database, this for your clustering and all that. So you have a lot of things that I lined up for you, which is fantastic for acceleration, right? Uh -huh. You can get to work right away. But by the same token, it feels a bit like you're not really building your own thing. Yeah. And I felt at LinkedIn where I would get a chance to build these tools from scratch and invent them myself. Yeah, I, I have to admit, uh, for me, it is really hard to know to 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 to, to work with a tool without knowing what the tool exactly does. So it's way easier to learn something from scratch than understand and then use the tool, right? So um, mm -hmm. it could be hard to get you know all the tools and just compose things together. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. So uh, so that was a big part of the appeal for me. So and LinkedIn. And, uh, so the the. the what you did at LinkedIn? So you started Kafka? No. This would be the perfect, you know, the perfect, <laughs> the perfect story, you know. Uh, started Android, then Kafka. Then I was curious about the next, you no, know, the next company. So what was the job uh, at no, LinkedIn? But, uh, I, hmm. I did work quite a bit with the, the person who created Kafka. No, so uh, I, when I joined LinkedIn, they they basically told me, so you know, we're, we're just starting an Android team. Do you want to run it? And I said, oh. hell no. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm leaving Google so I can do something else than Android. So what else can I do? So I ended up doing a lot of backend and uh, infrastructure also. This time I, I switched a bit more toward infrastructure and building these tools that now I had a pretty good idea how Google did things. And I wanted to uh, adapt this to the LinkedIn culture and mm -hmm. try to help them grow uh, with all the pains that they were having through. Because like I said, they were going through a hyper growth phase and, and this is always painful. Regardless of how you tackle it, it's always painful. Uh, infrastructure can you know, fall, fall under its own weight. Uh, engineers can become unhappy. Uh, and uh, LinkedIn was at a pretty critical uh, point uh, in, its, in its history there. So we had to negotiate that curve very, very quickly. What did you build it? What, which tools and what, what was it? Uh, they were all internal tools to, to help um, mostly supervision and also introspection into some of the data we had. Okay. I also helped quite a bit in uh, managing the way we were doing branching and merging and all that. Uh, LinkedIn had a very, very uh, complicated way of doing things. Uh, and me coming with my Google background, I was able to show some uh, some of the better ways to do okay. this. Um, so, and after Link, uh, LinkedIn, there was a couple of other startups, right? You mentioned... Yeah, uh, so, uh, so I left LinkedIn after about a year and a half because I finally got a chance to do a real startup. Um, I was reached out to by one of my former Google and, uh, Google uh, colleagues uh, who had just created a company with a friend of his. So he was CTO, his friend was CEO, and they needed just an old starter employees. And so mm -hmm. I, were, I joined as employee number two. So we were just four people. And I got to do a full startup experience. And at yeah. first, it was just the four of us in a, in a tiny Palo Alto office with uh, no heat and uh, basically building everything from scratch. Uh, and uh, I worked there for a couple of years and I got to do pretty much everything that I wanted in a startup where you need to create everything. Uh, uh -huh. And whenever there is a, prob a problem, if you don't solve it, nobody else will. So you need to solve it yourself. And what you build there, so roughly? 
So we built a, a, a product which uh, I thought was very interesting, which of course didn't end up succeeding, although we, we later got acquired by LinkedIn, two years later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. But, but that's separate. The, the product wasn't really a success. Uh, but the, the idea was that uh, it was a, a calendar assistant. It was okay. an assistant that would go through your calendar, see uh, all the people that you're meeting, okay. and, uh, and fetch a profile on all these people so that by the time you sit down with them, assuming you don't know them, so it's for people who meet a lot of new people, yeah. but by the time you sit down with them, you receive an email telling you everything you need to know about that person that has been gathered from all kinds of social networks and all kinds of sources. So uh, if they have, you know, a public Facebook, for example, we would just crawl their Facebook and we can see, oh, they were on vacation in Germany last week, or no, they just had a baby, or they just went you know, swimming somewhere or something like that. Or we can gather uh, information about their education. They went to this college. And by the way, your friend also went to that college. So we're doing all kinds of smart things to try to correlate so that by the time you meet that person, you have a very good idea of what they are, what they did and you have a good way to interact with them and get to know them better. So it's uh, very much like Persona, it's on Microsystems, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yes. <laughs> yes, but this time it was a little bit faster. Okay, uh, and uh, right after that, Okta, right? Uh, no, there were a couple of other companies in between. I went to Yahoo in between and, and another, uh, I worked for a Chinese company for a while as well. Um, uh, I was an architect at Yahoo for a couple of years, and at the Chinese company, I was a, a VP, um, and uh, and then uh, then Smart Things, and then Okta. Uh, I, I don't think we need to go through. Well, you can pick whatever feels interesting to you, but it's what's interesting is Yahoo still. Yahoo is unusual. So uh, what did you do at Yahoo? Java still? Uh, yeah. So at Yahoo, I was an architect. So I was uh, writing less code on my uh, my day job. Um, I now I I write code mostly on my uh, spare time on uh, at night and weekends, uh, but I haven't written code in my day job for a while. I think, well, Yahoo must have been the first company where I stopped working, stopped writing code on a daily basis, but I was still very involved. I was an architect there and the architects have a very uh, special role in Yahoo where they interact with a lot of teams and try to help them and guide them toward good practices, mm -hmm. uh, sharing information, uh, helping them debug, helping them performance problems, uh, looking at metrics and data and crash rates and figuring out hard problems and things like that. So, so firefighter, uh, basically, I, right? I'm sorry? Firefighter role. So to fix yes, the, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think firefighter is a good way to do, to tell them. Basically, whenever a team is in trouble and is having a hard time with a specific thing, then you dispatch an architect to work with them for several weeks, sit down with them and go through them and help them through these pains. Okay. So it was, it was kind of new, also a new kind of job for me, which is why I was uh, interested in it because I got to interact with all the, all the teams. So it was mobile, mm -hmm. uh, but I got to interact with all the teams that were writing mobile apps at Yahoo. And uh, people don't realize this, but at the time, Yahoo had about 60 different mobile apps, you know, half on Android, half on iOS. Okay. Uh, people know the most famous ones, you know, the stock, the maybe the fantasy league, uh, the weather, the mm -hmm. news and things like that. But they have tons of applications with tens of millions of monthly active users. Okay. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of money and uh, circulation. Uh, so all these teams, uh, a lot of them were just very uh, separated and isolated. And so there was not a lot of cohesion at the time when I joined, even though Marisa was trying to fix that. Uh, so at the time, they were all uh, doing the, uh, their development in their own corner. Mm -hmm. And so architects were the kind of the glue that allowed all these, all these little teams to be able to participate and, and contribute and talk to each other more. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So now what interests me the most is Okta, of course. So now mm -hmm. it's your current job. So um, what is Okta? Uh, so <laughs> that's hard. It's hard to explain, I guess, for, for engineers, maybe not so much, but explaining what Okta does uh, on a larger level is, is harder. But I, I've come up with a metaphor, uh, with an analogy that I think has been pretty successful. Um, you, you must be um, familiar with the, um, a single sign. 
Yeah. So single sign-on. Uh, yeah. In a nutshell, for people who are not familiar with what it means, I'm sure you, everyone has used single sign-on. Maybe they don't know that it's called that. Single sign-on means you log into Gmail, you enter your password, you're in, and then you want to launch Calendar. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to type your password. You're logged in automatically in Calendar. Mm -hmm. This is happening thanks to something called single sign-on. And since Google owns the login, once they have identified you as Gmail, they can identify you in some other properties that they own. Mm -hmm. This is single sign-on. What we're doing at Okta, one, one of the many things that Okta does is making that more universal, mm -hmm. which means we want to, uh, we're implementing single sign-on across companies. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's going to happen now, you want to log in, for example, to GitHub. You first go through Okta, Okta authenticates you and then logs you into GitHub. And now you need to uh, log into Atlassian or Jira, for example, and you go through Okta again, but since Okta just identified you and authenticated you for GitHub, it can log you in automatically to Atlassian. Mm -hmm. We do that for hundreds and hundreds of different products and applications. Uh, it's basically, basically universal single sign-on. So this it's, is- We do a, a lot of other things, but this is the most, I think, the easiest to describe. It's a cloud service. It's a cloud service, yes. Yeah. Is it a startup again? Oh, no, no. It's a, it's a big company that uh, went public a few years ago, uh, about 3,000 employees, I think, wow. something like okay. that. Okay. I thought, you know, 10 people again, so, and then you are happy, you know. <laughs> no, 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 because um, it, it, for me, it made a really fresh uh, impression, because what I saw is not an evangelist showing code, and uh, the code was to the point and was well done. This is why mm -hmm. I became curious about Okta. Because uh, there are lots of such solutions, but the, the 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 Okta examples were lean and to the point. So what I look at was OpenID Connect and you know single sign on. What you this is also what I need for my apps, and there are not many such providers. I mean, uh, I don't know whether you're aware of Keycloak. It's like uh, the implementation which is based on JBoss. There's another one, uh, ForgeRock, which runs on 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 uh, is also a Java-based solution, and um, and Okta made me just curious what it is. So, um, uh, do developers you know to to create an account in Okta or how this works or what what is no the yeah so so the, this particular service that I just described is really for end users and employees, mostly mm -hmm. employees right now. So. Uh, the way I, I got exposed to Okta is that the, the company before Okta, uh, SmartThings, uh, Samsung, was using Okta. And so the way it works is, like I said, you want to log into uh, GitHub, you go to your Okta dashboard, and your Okta dashboard is showing you all the applications that your company is uh, using. Mm -hmm. uh, you see the one on GitHub, you click on GitHub, you authenticate, you're done. Uh, and you'll see GitHub, you'll see uh, your, your maybe internal HR, you'll see a bunch of all these apps. And so the, uh, the pain of logging in is completely gone. Uh, and I was so impressed with how fast the login was. Uh, you don't need to remember, you know, hundreds of passwords. You don't even need to use a password manager anymore. Right? It's all managed automatically with a lot of interactions. So uh, it's really an end user feature, uh, mostly right now employee feature, but we're also expanding to regular users. Mm -hmm. So if you know Okta, it's probably through your company right now. And you're just enjoying the fact that you can log in very quickly to, to all the applications that you use on a daily basis. Okay. And what do you do at Okta? Are you developing code? No, no. I'm a, I'm a VP of engineering. I'm running a, a, an organization that is in charge of what we call devices. And, and devices are basically uh, iOS, Android, Windows, and macOS applications. Okay, nice. So, and, so, and still Java going on in Okta or is Java less company? Uh, Java, Kotlin, Swift, uh, C Sharp. Um, we need all of these languages, right, to do uh, to do to cover all these operating systems. Yeah, this but is the, the client side. Yeah. But backend the, is the also backend, Java. The backend is Java. Yeah, backend is hundred percent Java. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you. It was really nice, you know, to cover lots of Java history with you. And uh, what I will do is to invite you back. I don't know this year later and talk about Okta, whatever you like.
if there are some topics yeah. around, we could just yeah, do it. We, we can talk a bit uh, tech also and languages and things like that, which I know you're interested in as well. Yeah, perfect. So um, where people can find you on the internet? Uh, well, I have, um, well, I'm not super active on Twitter. They can you just look at my name. I yeah. have, uh, my blog is still out there on the bus.com, B-U-S-T.com. Your blog, uh, you, you name it Otaku, why? Uh, at the time when I created it, I was uh, studying Japanese and uh, it felt pretty uh, relevant for me to call myself an otaku because I, I, I'm a big nerd, uh, not just in computing okay. and uh, computer science and writing code, but I'm a big nerd in a lot of other topics. And uh, uh, whenever I like something, I tend to be very, very deeply involved in it. Uh, so I think that's that that term captured me pretty well. Perfect. So and the next time I would really love to talk about, with you about, you know, your emulator and your gaming mm -hmm. experiences as well. Okay, that sounds great. I look forward to it. So, thank you a lot and uh yeah, and and keep keep exploring. This is what I can tell you, right? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Adam. It was a okay, pleasure thank talking you. to you. Bye. Bye.